Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Third Culture Africans. On this week's episode, we're talking women, power and money. A topic really evocative given that black African women across the world, including black women from across the world, are finding space and using their voices to advocate for themselves and the future generations to come. My guest on this week's episode is Luazi Wali, a lovely individual who has dedicated her time to creating change and impact for women. She's passionate about creating opportunity for African women and African women in diaspora, full of knowledge on funding and also starting the conversation around how do we change the disparity that we see in gender pay, in opportunity pay, and even the ability to scale our ideas on the continent. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Loisy. It's slightly different to our previous episodes because I wanted to leave some of our listeners with real tools that would help them navigate from idea to brand to scaling. Catch you next week. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Sal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Hi, Loazi. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and looking forward to chatting. Me too. So to get you on the show took a little bit of time, but I'm really excited to have you on. So each episode I give each guest. So Loazi is an Obama leader, Africa fellow, a fundraiser, investor, and entrepreneur. It's a lot of titles. I hope to live up to them soon. <laughs> But thank you. I guess let's jump in. You have spent the better part of your career as an investor, an investor in the venture capital space. And I guess topical to today, really, before we sort of delve into your journey and today being like our landscape today, we're seeing a lot of movement on the continent around venture capitalism, investments, and that ecosystem being built for the first time. And it being exciting, but obviously challenging at the same time. Before we really tap into the stuff that I really want to get to, and I think you know what I want to get to, <laughs> if you can paint a picture of the VC space in Africa as it stands now, because I think there's a lot of mystery around it. 
No, 100%. So I think it's an interesting space at the moment, right? So I think to sort of kick things off, so to just kind of give a sense of global VC market, right? So we saw a record about 300 billion raised globally in terms of global venture capital. Compared to that, I think Africa raised about a little over, you know, 500 million to a billion dollars in 2019, 2020. And so though we're seeing a sort of increase in in the amount of, of capital that's moving this way relative to the rest of the world, it's still very small. And so I think that's the first thing to start with. I'd say the other part of that conversation is mirrored around a few things, right? So globally, you look at the US markets and the European markets, which are quite you know, well-developed and, and you look at venture capital as a concept, right, started in the U.S. and quite, you know, prevalent there. But when you look at the continent, you know, some of the, I'd say the four leading markets are in Africa and when it comes to VC, you know, you'd have Nigeria, you'd have South Africa, probably Kenya, and more recently Egypt in terms of deal activity. And across all those markets, especially, you know, South Africa being, you know, historically a more private equity and M&A, you know, space with the JSE and a very well established sort of growth economy. The idea of venture capital, though, is used quite loosely on the continent, I'd say is a very nascent and very new concept to some extent, in the sense that there a lot of the capital that we've seen come into continent has been towards very later stage growth sort of infrastructure projects that are more driven towards private equity, M&A activity. And so the idea of startups and sort of early stage startups is one that is relatively new. And I think one that a lot of investors are trying to get their head around. And we're seeing economies like Nigeria, I would argue, and probably Kenya, have been quite pivotal in sort of leading the conversation and sort of the deal flow in, in, in that space compared to maybe your South African economy, who I'd say we have, I'd think, one or two funds predominantly within the Cape Town region, but very, very early in terms of, of venture capital on the continent. And, and so what you have then is a market with, you know, fantastic opportunity and, and you know, great market opportunity when you think about just the plethora of problems we have to solve. But what you then have is sort of misalignment in capital. So you have lots of capital, you know, hundreds of millions of, of dollars sort of chasing your growth stage, your later stage deals, which is what the market has been used to. When you think of sort of oil and gas economy in Nigeria, sort of your M&A in South Africa. And what you then have on the other side of that is about, you know, 70 to 80% of the ecosystem or continent population, if you will, is really at the pre-seed to seed stage, which is the very early sort of idea level, you know, validation, just trying to get startups off the ground or ideas off the ground. And so one of the early issues that you have in, I think, you know, venture capital and, you know, different types of capital or instruments, if you will, which we can touch on if we need to, are really then looking to sort of serve that market. And so I think that's what we're seeing come up now. And we've seen quite an interesting, a lot of momentum, I'd say starting 2019 and even more so 2020 with startups like your Flutterwave and we're seeing exits from Paystack. Flutterwave just became officially a unicorn that month ago. We just saw Chipper Cash raise as well at about a 1.3 valuation. And so we're starting to see some interesting deal flow come into the continent and deal sizes, which hopefully will drive more capital. But I'd say compared to the rest of the world, we're still very, very early and quite small. Yeah. And I think when we think of, I guess, the fundraising landscape for a long time, like you pointed out, these are well-established million dollar, in some case, billion dollar industries that are able to attract venture capital interest, usually foreign direct investment. And that's now 
changing where we're seeing startups, as you said, unicorns benefit from this investment. But before we kind of jump in, I guess I wanted to set the backdrop for our conversation. So you're primarily in the fintech space, and that's where you've played for a very long time. And I guess my question around that is, again, something in its embryonic stages in Africa, but nonetheless needed, right? Like our our continent needs fintech, uh, you know, the other or older models struggle, right? Infrastructure struggles, even though we had a conversation about load shedding before we began this, <laughs> began this call. I know. Um, oh my goodness. So, and, and my question has to do with, I guess, the dichotomy or, or, or the duality of, you know, fintech in Africa and the reality of the infrastructure of Africa. That's a really interesting question, right? So I think for a bit of context on my side, so uh, although Daphne spent quite a fair amount of time within fintech. I think at my time, for example, at Founders Factory over the last two years, we, you know, focused across both fintech and health tech. And and the way we thought about fintech was really with a wider lens, right? So anything that sort of has either a payment or monetary value or monetary system attached to it. And so that then opens up the scope to every sector, if you will. And so definitely seen a lot of insight into that. And then obviously the health industry growing as well. And I think you touch on a really interesting point, right? And one that for me, I'm excited about being in the VC space and and working with entrepreneurs and founders who are solving some of these problems, right? Because historically, Africa has been a very infrastructure sort of brick and mortar continent, right? With, you know, oil and gas and railway and really trying to get infrastructure set up. But you know, part of what I think COVID-19 brought to the fore and, and 2020 really illuminated, especially on the continent, is that, you know, the digital infrastructure is actually really, really underdeveloped at best. And so what that does is it really created a, a interesting or very glaring difference between the haves and the haves not, meaning those who are digitally capable were able to continue work as normal. And that goes for corporations all the way to startups. But those that were are not on sort of the digital infrastructure saw themselves, you know, really lose income, lose jobs and, and really not be able to cope with momentum. And so we, we sort of do live in this duality or, or dual ecosystem, right, where the differences between the haves and the have nots are, are super polarized. And that continues to filter all the way into capital markets and, and who gets money and who doesn't. And I think something in, and we'll probably break that down a little bit more. I feel like this is where we're entering into part two of a conversation we started off air, but (laughs) let's dial back into your journey and how you found yourself in this space. Because I think oftentimes our understanding, and especially as, as young as venture capitalism is, on the African landscape, you know, traditionally it's a rich uncle, rich aunt, family members, mm-hmm. it's, you know, friends and family, work hard, have an angel investor, move on. You studied finance and international business in the US and mm-hmm. then decided on a career in investment, but not investment banking. Why? Why is the question? Because, <laughs> you know, the assumption is you go into a bank, but why investments in the way that you have gone into it? especially on the continent where the landscape is so small? I get that question all the time. And why did you choose to come back? 
So I think just to give a, you know, some personal context on myself, I think, you know, and probably a lot more, I'd say diaspora Africans can maybe relate. I think for me growing up on the continent, right, I think, you know, born and raised sort of in Swaziland, but my dad's Nigerian. And so grew up during, you know, pre-freedom South Africa. And I think one of the things that was quite palpable very early as a, as a child was this idea of, you know, the ceilings were very evident in Africa in terms of you could study, but you could get so far, right? And and especially being a Black African woman, pre-apartheid, you know, the, the ceiling was very palpable, right? And so I think one of the, the, the fortunate parts that I had is I had family living in the U.S., and long story short, that's how I sort of end up in, in the U.S. and studying finance and, in you know, as you've described. But I think for me, really what led that journey is growing up, I always had this inherent, you know, just unsettled view of the world, right, around why is it that, you know, just growing up in one jurisdiction means your life could be completely different, right? And why is it that in Africa, you know, the narrative was often you're not smart but, or people are poor, they're lazy, you know, this idea that poverty is an IQ issue, right? And and people are just inherently lazy and not self-serving and don't want to work. And sort of this dead aid model that I think we had all grown up with in, in Africa. And so part of my curiosity about moving to the U.S. and and really focusing on a career in finance was really from that paradigm to say, you know, one, I always had a real drive and still do and, and still what drives me today in terms of BC is really rethinking finance for the continent, right? And really understanding why things are the way they are. And the long I sort of studied that problem and impact that problem, I realized to actually inform it or be a, a part of that conversation or solution, you kind of had to go to the Mecca, right? You you really can't inform a solution if you don't really understand the problem. So for me, part of moving to the S was that was, okay, so from what we understand, America runs the world, you know, capitalism, Wall Street, really wanted to get my head around, okay, so what is it about them that, you know, who decided that the world should work this way? And what are the things that, you know, being in the U.S. and had the fortune of going to schools that I did and, and having the exposure that I did is the one thing that became really evident very early on was that poverty is not an IQ issue, right? It's an access issue. And that's access to knowledge, capital and markets. And for me, that was so illuminating because what that then did was realize that one, if human beings, so Bretton Woods and, and you know, the people who actually were the architectures of the financial systems we now live with, if it was man-made, maybe there's a way that we could rethink it and we could create it again, right? And, and for me, that has always been the paradigm that has driven me. And so to answer your question, part of my reasoning around not going directly into banking, for example, so part of it was just timing. So I actually, you know, I'd interviewed with Goldman Sachs and a few other of the key banks. But unfortunately, I graduated 2008, 2009. As we know, that's one of the biggest market crashes happened. And so QE laws or quantitative easing laws made it so that you couldn't actually, you know, as an international student anyway, couldn't work within banking and finance at the time. And so fortunately, I had interned with um, one of the leading sort of aerospace and energy manufacturers in the world, really enjoyed it. And so ended up joining and taking the sort of corporate finance route. But I knew always in the back of my mind that my real passion and my real work was around just rethinking finance for the continent. And it sort of took me to this journey of sort of discovering, you know, women. There were three key women for me who really informed that that notion. The first was a lady called Jacqueline Novogratz. She's most well known for founding what was called Acumen Fund at the time, but Acumen 
now and and really one of the first sort of impact investing really dignity based funding models that i'd come across which was really intriguing to me this idea that social impact and financial return weren't mutually exclusive right because the narrative all along had been to do good it means you must sort of forego returns and it's either social impact only in other words you choose a life of sort of philanthropy all your life or it's banking and consulting and it's like this wall street route and so for me the idea that you could actually merge the two where you could have some sort of impact focus as well as financial returns for me it was really interesting and so it really led me down the journey into sort of impact investing and innovative finance which then led me to discover the second woman who I'd say impacted my career quite notably a woman of color and her name is Doreen Shanaz and she started what was called the Impact Investment Stock Exchange in Singapore they basically along with the Rockefeller Foundation and very early um, curators of the impact investing ecosystem, which now is is very, you know, well understood. But they sort of were early pioneers and, you know, naming the sector that way. And and what she was really pioneering at the time was not only impact investing as a sort of social investment vehicle, but rather more interestingly, sort of innovative finance as a whole school of thought, right, within the financial industry. And what that meant was could we actually start creating really interesting financial instruments that could really solve for like the liquidity issue in Africa? Meaning, are there other instruments that we could actually use that could provide the same level of financing and income and an aid to the continent, but with a more sort of sustainable lens and, and structure approach built in, right? And so that means could you leverage the same sort of Wall Street capital, package it in some sort of social impact bond or, or package it into some sort of investment vehicle that still does the work of, of disseminating capital, but in a way that's dignity-based, in a way that still allows for control to the founders, and in a way that's just sustainable and, and I think has integrity at the center of it, which means you're just enabling people to, to start their own work and build their own startups, right? And for me, that that was really groundbreaking. And the work they have now done is quite notable. They they won sort of the Nobel Peace Equivalent Prize, the Business for Peace Prize in 2017 for their Women's Livelihood Impact Bond, which was the first sort of financial instrument or actual financial security, which was a traditional bond, but with both social and impact returns. It was quite small in the first one. It was about $8 million, but oversubscribed overperformed most of its competitor products on on the market. And they're now onto like Women's Livelihood Bond 3, which is now raising anywhere from 20 million to about 40 million and upwards. And for me, that was really exciting because what that said was there are alternative structures and alternative models to solving for for poverty and solving for um, sustainability on the continent, which is for me then has just sort of informed my career and my decision to actually move back home in 2015. And and so even moving to the US, I always had a very clear view of the fact that I was going there to learn, understand as much as I could from the architects of the, of the system we live in, with the view to always come home and, and implement and, and see what sort of structures we could Im- implement here that sort of move the needle on those issues. Amazing. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. 
They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. You briefly mentioned your time with uh, Founders Factory, who have had, you know, quite a lot of press globally. Yeah. And quite well known. But that leads me to, I guess, wanting to discuss more around the actual reality, right? And the statistics. So as a Black African business owner, male or female, because I think the differences in gender only worsen <laughs> as, as you turn into a female. Um, but even for males, you know, statistically, men raised 36 times more money than women. And, and obviously, the stats for Africa probably look a lot worse than that. And, you know, women are more likely to raise funding for a business idea through being in a relationship than, <laughs> no, but this is true, right? Yeah. Um, than actually getting her idea funded in the same traditional way. Because what I find confusing about the stats and how different the messaging is, considering that the Black economy is by and large fueled by female entrepreneurship, because they haven't been able to measure this right into actual numbers. I just wonder what the role of funding in business, especially on our continent and with your experience, right, having been part of a, a global machine that is committed to doing this. What is the role of funding when we start to think about, I guess, the basic principles of what that can do for scale? That's a great question. And I mean, in a nutshell, funding is absolutely critical, right? Um, when you look at almost every idea or industry in the world, non-gender specific, every part of it is, is driven by capital. Mm. And so when you consider that, you know, just global VC again over 300 billion raised just in 2020. So it went up actually from 2019. So from 2019, you saw about 150 billion raised in, in capital, um, venture capital across the, the US. Roughly about 2% of that went to women founders. So that's white Asian women predominantly, and less than 0.2% of, of 155 billion went to women of color founders. That just shows you just the, how glaringly different that scale is. And, and when you consider that we make up more than 50%, roughly 50% of the global population, it's really unsettling, right? And so when you then move that statistic forward to 2020, where 2020 actually saw a record amount of money raised in venture capital up about 300 billion globally, mm. despite everybody's concerns, right? Because everybody was worried that, you know, COVID impact would be get deal flow going, but the advent of sort of digitization across e-commerce, health tech, ed tech, all of these spheres drove a lot of money into the ecosystem. So we saw a record amount of venture capital raised in 2020. And yet we saw women, the amount of money going towards women founders drop actually considerably versus 2019, which then tells you that just from the get-go, women are really adversely affected, um, not only on a capital scale, but also just from post-COVID, we've seen that a lot of the industries that have been impacted are ones that had a high concentration of women, for example, your hospitality industries, your retail industries, 
And secondly, women were most impacted as well, because, you know, when kids had to go back home and, and homeschool, and as you would know, and every other parent knows, a lot of that responsibility fell on the women, right, to then take mm -hmm. care of the kids and take care of that. And a lot of them had to then leave the workforce. Yeah. Oh, their working careers were severely impacted. Absolutely. And their mental health as a result of juggling it all. Everything, mm. 100%. And so although, you know, funding overall was up about 4% in 2020, only about 2.3% of that went to women. And so mm. it just shows you that without that early stage capital and, and when you actually just to step back from that, when you look at, you know, just the, the sort of cycle of a business, right, of an idea. So you go from sort of pre-seed to seed. In Africa, we have sort of pre-Series A, but globally, you go from a C to Series A, B, C, and D. Mm. A lot of the capital that was raised is obviously chasing your sort of pre-Series A, Series A, B startups, um, all of them predominantly male-driven. Mm. And women sort of sit at the very front of that scale at the pre-C to seed level. Mm -hmm. And about two, three years ago, and, and part of what I still do now, I sit on part of the, the leadership team for the Grass and Michelle Trust Women in Finance Network, which mm. is the point of that was something called New, new Faces, New Voices, which was started by Mom Grass and effort to say we need new faces and new voices, predominantly women of color, mm. to come into the financial industry. And because there's very limited data in terms of, you know, specific of women in Africa, we have a lot of proxy and data globally around how VC impacts women of color, but very little here. And so we did a study back in 2016, 2017, just sort of scoping out women in general and in terms of getting a sense of like how much money they would need to get ideas off the ground and, and ideas to scale. And we mm -hmm. found that really the range was as small as like 25,000 to 50,000 USD, which mm -hmm. is not a lot of money. Not right? at all. It just shows you that what we're finding as well is that women are, are starting businesses. A lot of them are starting businesses at a faster rate than their male counterparts, mm -hmm. actually. In Africa, about Senegal was leading that at almost 19, 20%. Mm. But the problem is we start businesses a lot more than everybody, but we struggle to scale them. Mm. And a function of scale, right, is growth capital and, yes. and venture capital as a system. And so by virtue of not being a part of that VC ecosystem and not receiving that money, we're seeing a lot of women's ideas die and businesses die. Femtech yes. was only worth about a billion dollars over last year as an economy, but a majority of the actual Femtech products are led by male founders, which is so counterintuitive, when, yeah, right? When you um, think about it, you touched on something, actually, you know, the impact of COVID. And I think before COVID, I feel as though women have always had to choose, you know, job versus entrepreneurship for reasons that perhaps COVID highlighted, right? Which is the emotional labor of being a parent, etc. The burden tends to fall on the woman on the continent. Yes. And so women are then forced to choose. And I wonder where you would sit, especially as someone who is hoping to create a sense of equality in the space, or at least in, in access to funding for um, Africans and including African women. Mm -hmm. What that does to women and their comfort levels talking about money, because I find mm -hmm. that we aren't socialized to be comfortable 
speaking about money. Absolutely. And that's such an interesting insight that you bring out because in a lot of the research we've done now, just studying, you know, this problem around, okay, why don't women raise money and why don't they get access to capital? So I think the first one we've touched on, which is a very, you know, glaring one, which Mm. is the idea that money is Western, it's male, it's white. And so there's this inherent issue of sort of meritocracy versus meritocracy, right? Mm. That in venture capital, which speaks to, I invest in people who look like me, sound like me, feel like me. And mm. typically that is white male Western. And obviously meritocracy speaks to the merit of an idea. And, and so what we found is obviously Although women have great ideas, just by nature of the biases that exist within, you know, the originators of capital, yes. they're not getting invested. So that's one idea and, and one, you know, data point that we can speak to. Mm. But the second one that was quite interesting as part of some of the studies we've done, you know, as early as sort of the Gross and Michelle Trust initiative all the way till this point is the second part of why women are struggling to raise capital is, and I hate to use the word struggle because mm. I think for me, it's more about a rethink. Mm. And it's really more about creating systems of capital that have a different type of gatekeeper, right? Mm. More women should be running funds, more black Mm. women should be gatekeepers of capital, because then as a woman, it's more intuitive for you to go and raise from people who, again, look like you, feel like you and understand more importantly, Mm -hmm. the industries that you represent, like beauty, retail, etc. But there are other nuances to how women just inherently are socialized, which I think you touch on. So in Africa, for example, we found in the study with the Gross Michelle Trust that one, just the idea of disposable income for an African woman is something that is just unheard of, right? What you often will see, and if you, you know, go to, you know, your own family and lineage, when a woman gets extra money, she typically spends it on either educating, you know, a cousin or an aunt's child Mm. or any other child in the village or in the community that needs it. She's usually spending her money on food, clothing, school Mm. supplies, that sort of thing. So versus a man, a woman's disposable income, if she has any, typically is reinvested into the family and the community. Mm. So that's the one one data point that also says then when you consider that less than 1% of all venture capital or external capital goes to black women, majority of them typically bootstrap the ideas, right? And and this is probably something you can speak to as well, you know, having started your own business, most women then rely on sort of disposable income or mm-hmm. other forms of streams of income to actually bootstrap the ideas off the ground so that get to a point where they can actually prove traction and hypothetically you should be able to go to market and then raise money. But a lot of the other sort of social pieces are, one, we don't have as much disposable income, but two, there's a lot of just traditions and cultural nuances that Mm. make it a lot harder as well for women to actually raise money in the ways that society has defined it, right? So we're not comfortable speaking about it. Two points, right? Which is the gender disparity in earnings, which is further heightened by this process. And the second being, there's this new narrative that... And I hate it, but like, I feel like we have to talk about it, which is a woman's option of finding a partner or especially in the sort of black African community, right? Diminishes the more successful she gets. And I find that those two things work 
in relationship with each other, which then begs the question, why aren't we putting women and finances at the fore, given the burden, one, that they carry, two, mm. the impact they actually make and like statistically proven to make in a positive way? Yeah. And three, why aren't those tools readily available? And again, you know, this is where you jump in and talk about, you know, her HQ and all of that good stuff. But why aren't those tools readily available for a young African girl who has an idea that she's been able, which she has market tested, right? Which is now post revenue mm. so that she can ready herself for investment growth. Why doesn't that exist? Like, where is this special university that African boys get to go to that African girls aren't being allowed into? I think that's a great question. And and when you find it, do let me know, because I'd love to sign up. I think the truth of it, Desi, is the fact that we don't own the money. We don't own the capital. And mm. it really also sits at just the identity of capital, right? Even when you look at the startup ecosystem, let's even move gender aside. Majority of the billion dollars or two billion that's come into Africa over 2019, 2020, probably 80-90% of that is Western capital. Mm -hmm. African founders go to US or UK markets to raise money mm. and they're not raising it at home. And not because there aren't enough high net worth individuals, in my opinion, mm. but the like liquidity and, and just interest and, and risk averseness of local investors means they're just not driving capital that way. Mm. And so add that more to being a woman in Africa where there's still so many stereotypes and still so many predisposed roles and, and ideals, right, about a woman's place, if you mm. will. And that's in the kitchen. She should mm. be giving birth to children, speak only when spoken to. And, and although, you know, living in South Africa, that seems like something out there, those nuances and those cultural norms still exist. And there's a lot of work, you know, that I believe as women, we have to do ourselves. You know, we know the problems externally with the market, but I think there's still a lot of responsibility that we have as women to sort of do the work of healing and unlearning those paradigms, right? And figuring out different ways to show up and occupy space in the world. And I love where it seems the world is headed now with, with this new generation of Gen Z kids and, and new kids that are being born and younger parents who are in their 30s, you know, 40s, who are instilling a different type of rhetoric, if you will. Mm. But I think inherently, we still have those traditions and those cultures that will continue to be a hindrance unless women actually take the helm themselves and create their own tables, which is the work that I'm doing. I know it's the work women like you are doing and, and, and lots yeah. others in terms of how do we create our own tables and just redesign systems, which mean mm. more women, you know, become gatekeepers of capital and originators of capital. Yeah which in theory hopefully means then more women get funded. But equally, mm. there's not enough data yet to show that the correlation between those two actually exists. Mm. If anything, we've seen that even though more women are becoming GPs, I guess there was a slight interest increase this year. I think a recent like report talks about I think almost like a 42% increase in terms mm -hmm. of the number of women GPs. Um, it's called all raise. Mm. But equally, even though they're GPs, which means they're responsible for the sort of, to some extent, decision making on mm -hmm. deals, the problem still exists that majority of the LPs, so the people who actually put the money into the fund, are still white or 
like white males, right? And so the mandate then still gets diluted because they need to please and report to LPs that still have a very male, white-centric point of view. And so I, I think time will tell, right? It's only 0.2% that's been issued. And hopefully the more of us that take up space, the more that we see a move on on this issue. I love the stats 0.2%. But if we break that down into the actual number, it's not a lot. No, it's, it's, it's really you know, not a lot. It's not a lot for the fastest growing continent of people. The actual number that 0.2% becomes is not a lot. I would love for us in the time that we have left to hopefully leave some practical tools for anyone listening today going, well, I'll raise it wherever I have to go. How can, you know, an African business today ready themselves to to raise funding? So what are investors looking for? We talk about a pitch kit, but, you know, how can you ready yourself for that buyout at some point or, you know, that additional funding? I mean, I think that the rules are, are should be no different, right, for mm. women versus male founders, in mm. my opinion. Um, I think the merit behind an idea or a concept should always take precedence, right, especially mm. when it comes to investability. But unfortunately, we do live in a space where gender is applied, color is applied, and those lenses are applied. But I think, you know, there's three key things I know that we look for mm-hmm. when just evaluating a business, and I think a woman would apply. So the first, I think, is is obviously you know, we really look at the quality of the problem you're solving for, right? And it also depends around the scope of what you're building. So I'll just precursor with that. Mm. Because I think there's a very big difference between sort of whether a woman's building a startup. And when I think startup, it's more ones that we believe can hit like unicorn scale, right? Mm. So tech enabled, there's a fair amount of scale built in. Mm. Or if, you know, a woman just wants to build like a small like SME business or Mm. a side hustle. So depending on what you're building, what I'll speak to is mostly startups, because I think I would love a world where we push ourselves and and push women Mm. founders to the point where they can think unicorn and and they Mm -hmm. can think scale in that way. And so I think the first thing we'd look at is, you know, what's the quality of the problem you're solving for? And when I speak to quality of problem, it's saying, you know, one, is this a problem that a fair amount of people struggle with and are willing to pay for, right? Mm. So we like problems that are very high touch points across a large population of people. So problems that are, you know, solutions to problems like infrastructure issues. When you look at startups like Flutterwave, really what they were solving for was like the payment sort of infrastructure issue on the Mm -hmm. continent. And so when you really think about starting something and building something, it's really important to pay attention to type of problem you're solving and figuring out how big of a problem it is and consequently how that implies scale, right? So I think Mm -hmm. there's something to be said around the kind of problem you're solving. I think too, it's important to also look at your market scale potential, right? If it's a problem that only you and your friends struggle with, and it's not something that hopefully you can, you know, scale outside of your own economy or Mm -hmm. country into somewhere else, ideally for me, those are quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Where I'd like us women to, to sort of get to is, you know, launching businesses and solutions on the continent that could scale into the US and UK markets as mm. well in the same way that we see the Facebooks and the Instagrams and, and et cetera come this way. Mm. Because when you interrogate that statistic, right, it's it's an actual global issue. So black women and women of 
color are facing exactly the same issue everywhere in the world. Mm. So it's not a uniquely African problem. And so I think for me, market sizing is really important. And also then the third thing is, is really we look at is the quality of the team, right? At the end of the day, we could have all the fancy spreadsheets and models we want, but especially at the pre-seed to seed level where most of the startups are, most women founders are. So that's really early idea concept stage. What's important there, what you're really betting on is the founding team. And so you want to really have or build a team that one has some level of domain expertise for the problem they're solving for, Mm -hmm. right? Especially on the continent, we all have a clear understanding of the problems that exist, right? But Mm -hmm. it's important to understand the nuances behind that problem and have really low fidelity solutions of how you think you can prove your solution and solve that problem differently. And in Africa, that takes the shape of your network to some extent. Like, do you know someone who know someone just because we know how this continent runs like those Mm -hmm. type of things go a long way domain expertise goes a long way and also just having a technical co-founder which is the other issue that most women have Mm. is just from a coding and technical point of view it's very hard for women to find somebody to actually build their mvp or get them to the point where it's provable Mm -hmm. so we spend a lot of time really looking at the quality of the team the quality of the problem they're solving for And thirdly, you know, the market scale opportunity, just because you want to make sure that whatever it is you're working on is something that you can on sell and scale relatively quickly. Thank you. And so when someone has sort of gone through one, two and three, how do they then get themselves investment ready? Where do you go? Where do you actually where is the first door you have to knock on? That's the hard part, right? Mm. Unfortunately, right now, there really isn't a lot of places to go. So I'd say the first door you knock on, I mean, in theory, they like to say there's friends and family Mm. and sort of the friends and family in fool's round, right? Which is Mm. assuming that you have rich friends or rich auntie or Mm. rich uncle that, you know, can spare 25 to 50K, which is where we're seeing a lot of women just, that's the average ticket size that Mm. most women need to sort of get a product off the ground. And although I'd like to say that's a reality in Africa, that's definitely not the norm because Mm -hmm. the average African woman does not have a rich auntie and friends who, yeah, who have that sort of disposable income. Mm -hmm. So majority of where I'd say you start is, you know, there are a lot of growing accelerator and sort of incubator programs that I think are first point of call. So people like your um, startup boot camps, your YCs, your founders factory to Mm. some extent. So I think the accelerator incubator route is one that is is an option. But I think if, if you ask me personally, that's a big part of the problem right now. And mm. it's a lot of why, you know, I'm working on, on what I'm I'm working on in terms of building our own ecosystem where women are able to to get funded, right? Mm. Because there really aren't a lot of options. If you're not getting it from your friends, if you're not raising some sort of impact investing social capital through a philanthropist mm-hmm. and you don't get an accelerator, the accessibility to income or funding is really limited. It's non-existent, if I'm honest. So I think for me, my call to action and challenge to women is for us to all join together in some way to create our own structures and to create our own funds Mm -hmm. and to create our own tables where we can actually aggregate capital towards our own ideas. And and that's really the work that, you know, I'm working on and working to do through my startup and fund Her HQ right now, because, you know, it was a problem that I went through myself moving back home, you know, Mm. back to South Africa, 
about five years ago, I was looking to start something. And a big part of my problem was, you know, one, I have no idea where to go. There's no central depository of information. So there was a huge knowledge gap of just like, where do you even go to to learn about this or startup 101? Yeah, that special university. Yep. Yeah. And then two, there was just no capital available for women, right? Especially when we think again, that majority of women are living at that pre-seed to seed scale mm. sort of stage, whereas a lot of the money is at the growth to exit and, and, and M&A type capital. Mm-hmm. So it was a big sort of disparate, gap, you know, yeah. dichotomy. Yeah, dichotomy between the available money and where the actual need is. Yeah. So there's a capital issue. And then again, the third piece was market, like just visibility. Women are out there. And that's the other thing. I think there are amazing amounts of women building businesses But the problem is finding them and visibility and access to them is Mm -hmm. really hard, right? Unless you are on some Instagram group or a Facebook group or some Twitter hashtag, finding those women and aggregating them is is also really hard. And so for me, from my own personal experience, sort of led me to start Her HQ, which the idea actually came to me back in 2017, 2018, which I then paused to sort of build and join the early founding team for Finance Factory Africa. Mm -hmm. But since leaving... Last year, it's something I'm definitely focused on on bringing to the fore now and, you know, been actively raising myself. So going through a lot of these pain points. Mm. But effectively, what we exist to do is we're building a sort of social capital market for women by women. And what that means is we're really focusing on solving for those three bottlenecks that we identified, which is one access to knowledge, capital, and markets. And so we're trying to figure out, if, is there a way that you can democratize access to knowledge, capital, and markets for women of color specifically hmm. as a way to kind of get them up that sort of VC curve and, and that learning curve? Um, and I think for me, it's, it's, it's really, you know, the only option I think we have as women is unless enough of us occupy space, in this conversation, the problem is not going to go away. Yeah. And I think with, with the conversation requires some level of confidence, right? Or, or belief mm. in oneself around what you're capable of, which then speaks to a wider problem of imposter syndrome, which happens and which is one of the deterrents, right? For a lot of African women, you know, for the lack of a better word, punching beyond the cottage mom and pup business into, Mm. hey, I would love to scale this into, you know, multiple locations or or grow this into a pan-African movement or option. But then they, they hit the bottleneck of where is the funding in the industry that I know that will help propel this message? And I think you touched on this a little bit, but there's something around investment planning that I think needs to be had earlier on in the conversation. And I think it's such a key point to bring up in conversation and to continue to have conversations around investment planning, especially for the women who are now creating paths or or that lane for themselves and to look at their journeys beyond their their own generation, right? And and for generations to come. Because if we look at the first world, there's a level of investment planning that happens. But traditionally, and in our society at the moment, a lot of African women are leaving these discussions, planning, and even execution 
to the men, which but also perpetuates the problem, right? Because we don't talk about it. And it's not something that is brought up as a social tool for women to have. Yeah, but it's important. That's so true. 100%. I think you touch on, on it quite well, because again, you know, we've been socialized to believe that the girl child, right, is destined to be a mom she's socialized to want to be married be a mom and then play house mm. for the rest of her life and and which for me I think are beautiful things and I think as a woman it's it's a beautiful part of your journey I think the problem is when it's positioned as your only journey and so I think you're right in that I think it starts as early as the girl child for me before she even becomes a woman or a teenager who can start a business is really normalizing those conversations and and expanding her definitions for herself as a young girl so that mm. by the time you are getting to a place of adulthood you have a sort of wider view and paradigm of of who you are and who you can be because a lot of what we're dealing with now is a lot of traditional paradigms and and you know they manifest themselves in sort of imposter syndrome as you touch on mm. which is a huge issue but when you actually even unpack imposter syndrome right it's the notion that I don't belong there or I'm not mm. enough and, you know, this is above me or I'm not smart enough. Mm. And, you know, there's been a lot of studies done that sort of unpack, you know, different words. And it's been so interesting studying even just how women pitch and present their businesses, mm. which actually is a big tangible reason why most of them don't get funded is the way we present information using words like experts towards ourselves mm. and, and leader and being comfortable in those kind of tags. Whereas men, even without any credentials, are more mm. than comfortable, you know, positioning. We as women still struggle with that. And so you touch on a very important systemic issue, which I think only we as women can really solve for, you know, in terms of our generation. And then the hope is as more of us, you know, create a new generation, we start to instill a different message to the girl child and, and even to the boy child, right? Because I think he plays a critical role as mm -hmm. an ally for women. And even now, some of the, you know, I don't speak of this in sort of men versus women. I think there's a lot of male, there's a really big role for male allies and men of color to, you know, take their position in, in sort of you know, sponsoring and, you know, advocating for women and capital moving towards women. Because to your point, even in the home, right, we manage most of the finances in a home in terms mm -hmm. of grocery shopping, investments, etc. And yet we don't have the same level of participation, um, acknowledgement, or, mm -hmm. yeah, credibility at the wider level. So I think you, you touch on a very important point in terms of just thinking long term, but that mm -hmm. starts at, at the home level. And, and I'm excited about, you know, the world we live in now where digitally, you know, women are now post Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. George Floyd and all this stuff that took place last year. I'm excited about seeing this conversation come to the fore a lot more. Yeah. And I think one of the things that made me really excited to have you on was for us to somewhere start that conversation openly and honestly, yeah. because your your work is very much designed around the impact that that can make, not just to an individual family, but to the continent as a whole. Mm. Where can people find you? Right now, we're, we, we're launching the first product for HQ. So so basically what we're building with HQ, right, is really a community. So a URL to IRL community for multi-hyphenate women of color across the continent diaspora. 
mm-hmm. and and really centered around one unlocking the knowledge market right so really rethinking the way women connect learn you know finance and transact in terms of how they build mm-hmm. their businesses as well so website is coming shortly um so I'll share insight on that once it's live because we're mm-hmm. we're working on the first round of the product mm-hmm. but in terms of how people can get a hold of me I think Twitter for me is is best so my Twitter handle is Wazi Bali um first name last name i'm also on instagram under the same name and also personal email and and really just trying to grow the community and and getting as many women join this community because what we're really trying to do is one get like a female collective of founders operators builders professionals mm-hmm. in sort of some digital community right which to my research does not exist there is not one central place where women of color can go and meet and learn and speak and and converse in a way that is freeing and and non-judgmental so there's a very intentional strategy around connecting diaspora to africa mm-hmm. a lot more effectively but mm-hmm. the part that also i'm really excited about on the capital side is we're actually going to leverage that same group of women to build what we're calling a sort of female collective fund right it's what's been exciting in this market now we're seeing a whole bunch of different sort of alternative funding models rising up so across angel investor models sort of collective mm-hmm. models and so the idea is once we get a big enough community of these women you know we collectively can put as small as $1000 or £1000 mm. all the way to 10000 to 150000 whatever your affordability is Mm. And saying, is there a way that collectively as women, we can start to mobilize our own money yeah. towards startups? Part of what HQ will do is, you know, we have a, a pipeline of founders that we found on the continent and also diaspora that we would bring to that community of women to invest in. Mm. And then we also have then a market product, which sort of mirrors a sort of Shopify environment that says, if you're a woman in the community, you know, you have an idea, you want to build a very early MVP, we have an online store for you to start transacting. What that starts to do to your point around investment planning mm-hmm. is you start to build traction, you start to build some level of collateral and and revenue history so that that's something you can then take to a bank or take mm-hmm. to investor to show interest, which has been a big issue for women is that they have these ideas but there's no way of actually validating them and showing traction on them. And so we're really trying to build a holistic sort of digital to in real life solution for women to connect finance and build their businesses going forward you know leverage the sort of gig economy space mm. and the real insight around that is really saying we know it's really applying a sort of human centered approach to how women raise money and so yes. what we do know is we're not getting access to vc but we are bootstrapping so yes. if there's a way you could help women start to you know build and earn money on the side to fund their side hustles and collectively raise capital through community to fund their ideas and, and prove traction on those ideas theoretically we know and we've seen it with male driven funds there's tons of them now in the US like all raise is an example where we just saw an interesting one in the US called the collab fund which just raised a 50 million dollar fund specifically for black founders and that was raised using almost 99 LPs like 100 LPs 
And mm. basically, they just went to their community and across different states found Black people who were interested in investing. And they've now gone and created a sort of community VC, which is a big trend we're seeing now, this idea of leveraging community mm. as venture capital, because as Black people, we know we're sort of marginalized from the traditional forms of, of capital. And so that's really what we're excited to do. And, and anyone who would be interested in joining that community, we have a wait list, which I'll share with you after this in terms mm. of ways they can join join that community through her HQ landing page. Mm -hmm. And once the product goes live, which we're scoping for the next six to eight weeks, you know, that be first in line for that and yeah. first access into to that community. We'll have all the links and everything in the show notes, which will live on whatever streaming platform that you listen to the show on, as well as on thirdcultureafricans.com. Loazi, it's been such a pleasure having you on this week's show. And thank you so much for being so candid and sharing what you know. And hopefully this episode really goes out to anyone out there who is hoping to create change and follow their dreams and to know that there is a growing industry and ecosystem out there that is willing and ready to support you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And and this has been really insightful and, and I'm excited for these kind of conversations to happen more often, right, to your point. And really appreciate the time and look forward to hopefully having more of this going forward. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong and you are just getting started.